Good morning everyone. It's great to see you all here. It's been a fantastic week. Been very blessed with uh, with the rain that God's given us. Excited about doing mowing again. <laughs> I have to learn how to use my lawnmower. Uh, get the instruction manual out, but that will be a blessing. No one's complaining about that. So our culture continually shifts, doesn't it? Um, 2020 looks different to 1980. Uh, and 2020 looks different to 2019, don't you think? Things change pretty quickly and um, as a result of that our language changes. Our language adapts to the changes that we see in the society around us. So um, the Macquarie Dictionary, which is kind of like the authoritative Australian dictionary, um, they give out a, a word of the year or a phrase of the year um, every year as the, the defining um, phrase or word that has, um, that has influenced and that kind of summarises what that past year was all about. So the 2019 word of the year is actually two words and it's cancel culture cancel culture. If you haven't heard of cancel culture, that's okay. Uh, it's, a, it's a fairly new word. The best definition I could find online was this. Cancelling and cancel culture refer to removing support of public figures on the basis of their objectionable, objectionable opinions or actions. This can include boycotts or refusal to promote their work. Okay, so you get the idea of this. It's someone who's a public figure, someone who is, is in the public sphere and they have some kind of objectionable opinion or they have done some action that is out of favour with culture and so um, this means that culture will then choose to boycott or refuse to promote the work of that person and this results in cancelling of a project they're involved in or even the cancelling of their career or cancelling of something important like that. Um, if you haven't heard this word before, that's because it really has only become popular um, towards the end of the year 2019. It was barely used uh, before that. The, the, kind of, the origins of this was a, a piece written in the New York Times, um, Jonah Bromwich in 2018. He wrote this piece called Everyone is Cancelled. Uh, it only takes one thing and sometimes nothing for fans to dump a celebrity. So if you don't know what I'm talking about, maybe these examples might um, help you to understand. Uh, you might remember Roseanne. This was a, a popular US sitcom. Um, it ran from the 1980s, late 18, 1980s um, to the 19, I think it was 1997 um, that it finished. And then in 2017, they decided to um, start it up again and to, to reinvent the sitcom. And it lasted only a short time before the main character and the actor who plays Roseanne, her name is Roseanne Barr, she um, sent out a tweet that was considered insulting and, and very out of touch. Um, and so because of those offensive comments that she made about a, a political staffer in the US, um, the network decided to fire her and to, to cancel that show. That's an idea of cancel culture. So because she did something that was offensive, 
People jumped on that and there was backlash to that. Um, the public cried for her head, essentially, and the uh, producers of the show decided to cancel that show and, and subsequently kind of her career. Um, we also have Kevin Hart. This is one of the most popular and most well-paid comedians in the world at the moment. Um, you might have seen him in the new Jumanji movies. He's in a bunch of different things at the moment. Um, now, Kevin Hart is a, is a really... Uh, popular and um, he's he's really in his moment uh, right now. So in 2018, they invited him to host the Academy Awards and that was all fine until people started to bring out some tweets that he had made, I think it was eight years before that, um, some tweets that were considered offensive, tweets that were considered inappropriate and as a result of that people called for him to be cancelled from hosting the Academy Awards and, and he voluntarily stood down from that but certainly the Academy Awards was grateful to dodge that bullet there. Um, then you have people like James Gunn, he's the director of the popular Guardians of the Galaxy uh, movies so they've made movie number one, movie number two and then with regards to movie number three a couple of his old tweets coming from eight or nine years ago came up and, and were published by, by people who, you know, look through Twitter searching for uh, someone's history and his tweets were considered inappropriate and offensive and sure enough, Disney fired him. The difference with James Gunn is as soon as the controversy went away, Disney went and rehired him to do the movies because uh, he's very good at his job. But um, he's the exception. A lot of the time when people are cancelled, they, they are kind of um, publicly shamed and the, the projects or the career that they were involved in is, is cancelled. You've got other people, um, our young people would know YouTube stars who have been uh, cancelled. Um, they've lost millions of subscribers to their YouTube channels, which is effectively a death blow to their career. Um, and then you've got Hollywood stars. You've got the types like Kevin Spacey, Harvey Weinstein, uh, Aziz Ansari, Bill Cosby, Rolf Harris, R. Kelly, etc. All of these people have faced sexual misconduct charges and as a result of which their work and their career has been cancelled. They've, they've all faced repercussions in their own different ways. So what started out with social media being a place where you'd show people uh, what breakfast you had and show them the funny cat videos that you'd found on YouTube um, social media has now had a, a bit of a change in, in its climate. Now, instead of being a happy space uh, where people share themselves, it, it's a bit of a tense place where if you are caught saying the wrong thing, um, there are big repercussions. Just this week, I was reading an interview with Sammy J. He, um, some of you might be familiar with Sammy J. He does a lot of comedy work on the ABC. He does uh, like political comedy stuff and he's got a few shows on the ABC. He's going into radio work and, and he was describing how he doesn't have Twitter or, or any social media accounts because he's terrified of accidentally saying the wrong thing and it ruining his career. So he actually avoids social media altogether for that purpose. So the idea of cancel culture is this. It's about giving power to the masses. It's about saying that instead of um, delegating this to a courtroom setting and to a judge and a jury. Instead, everyone gets to see and hear the crime and everyone gets to decide on what the punishment might be. And of course, mob mentality means oftentimes someone decides on the punishment and everyone jumps on board because they want to be on the right side. 
This is what's happened in the past. You know, the Greeks and the Romans used to do this with their courts. Um, Whenever someone did something that was inappropriate or offensive, they would bring them before the local community and they would um, discuss what the crime was and and what the due punishment should be. And now we're we're kind of returning to that with giving the... the, the punishment to the masses for, for them to choose to inflict. It's just that instead of a local community, now it's the, the whole world who gets to decide on whether, you know, what the result of James Gunn's comments were or Kevin Hart or Roseanne. <clears throat> so I just want to talk about cancel culture this morning and talk about how the church should deal with this. This is not a, a new concept in the sense that, as Solomon says, um, there is nothing new under the sun, but it's a a new way of dealing with um, some of the the classic problems that we've always had, of how to deal with other people's evil, wickedness, sin, etc. And so I just want to bring out three points on how the church uh, might want to think about responding to cancel culture. And and these are just points that that deal generically with the principles that we should be thinking about with with this idea of cancel culture. Okay, so cancel culture and Christ. The first point is this. We are commanded to be upset by sin. Being upset by sin is biblical. Don't get that wrong. Um, You may have heard the quote... um, Well, these are the three points that we're going to look at. It is unhealthy to obsess about the sins of others, and Jesus didn't come to point out sin. He came to set us free from sin. This is a a quote from Wilhelm Steichel. He was an Austrian psychologist, and he said, The opposite of love is not hate, it is indifference. The opposite of love is not hate, it is indifference. God is described as many things. He is never described as being indifferent. Our God is never careless or callous about the problems of man. It's interesting, in the ancient world, all of the gods didn't really care about the the things that man got up to. Cicero says this, he says, The gods attend to great matters, they neglect small human matters. Uh, Aristotle says this, The gods are not concerned at all with the giving of good or bad fortune or matters of man. And Plato says, Human affairs are hardly worth considering in earnest. Um, a, A common phrase that we have today is, To each their own. And what we mean by this often is, I'm not going to interfere with every single decision that you make in your life. However, this can be dangerous, isn't it? Because sometimes to each their own can mean, I'm not interested in anything that you do. Even if it's wrong, I'm just going to let you go ahead and do that. But God is not indifferent because love is not indifferent. Love cares about people. If you have ever loved someone, a spouse or a friend or family, your kids you know that loving them means that you care about their behaviour, you care about their thoughts, you care about their attitudes. It doesn't mean a whole lot if I say to my wife, I love you, but I don't care what you do and I don't care a single thing about what you think, I don't care what your attitudes are, I have no care about who you are, I just abstractly love you. So it's So it is um, when we're commanded by God to love one another. If we truly say that we love one another and we mean it, those in the church, those in the world, those in our families, those at school, those um, who we surround ourselves with, we will be deeply invested in their lives. That's just part of love. 
Love means I care about you and I can't sit back and watch you if you're doing things that are hurting you or you're doing things that are causing pain. If we love one another truly, we will care deeply about the evils of sin which brings suffering and hardships, not just to the sinner but to the people around. Look at Romans 12 with me. Romans 12. Romans 12 is, is a um, fantastic summary of Christian ethics. Verse 9. Romans 12 and verse 9. Let love be genuine or sincere or without hypocrisy. This is what I'm talking about. If I say to my wife I love her but I don't care about anything in her life, if I don't care about uh, anything to do with her, that's love with hypocrisy, isn't it? That's saying I love her but not acting on it. And then he says, let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast or cling to what is good. The word abhor occurs only one time in the Bible and it's right here. The Greek word is apostigeo. It means to be horrified by. It means it's as if you're watching a horror movie. That's your reaction to evil if you're a Christian. It's like watching a horror movie. If you're like me, I don't like watching horror movies. I'll do anything but watch a horror movie. I am a coward uh, when it comes to terrifying things on my TV. I don't like watching horror movies. And, and the Bible says when you see evil in the world, it should horrify you. You should not be indifferent or passive to evil when you see it. On your TV, on the internet, in your enemy, in your government, in your workplace, in your family or in yourself. Evil that goes unchecked, evil that goes um, under the radar is not dealt with in the way that God asks us to. He says you should be watching a horror movie when you see that evil stuff. This is what the prophets were all about. The prophets were crazy about sin. I mean, they were focused on the, the evils that were in the society that they dealt with. Look at, um, let's look at Jeremiah chapter 2. Jeremiah chapter 2. The prophets didn't idly sit by and see the world in sin and do nothing about it. The great prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Hosea, Amos, etc. These prophets cried out against evil no matter where it appeared. This is a quote um, from Abraham Heschel. He wrote a book on the prophets and he wrote this. He said, The sort of crimes that fill the prophets of Israel with dismay we regard as normal, as typical ingredients of social dynamics. He said, To us, a single act of injustice like cheating in business or exploiting the poor, is small to the prophets. It's a disaster. It's a death blow to existence, a catastrophe, a threat to the world. How often do you watch the news and you see another big, powerful person exploiting the poor, not paying the wages of, of people who they employ, the big banks getting away with, with siphoning money off and, and doing anything to accumulate more and more wealth while leaving other people in poverty? And... We, we get so used to this, we get so accustomed to this that sometimes we can be indifferent to all of these things. And the prophets say that's not acceptable. We need to be horrified by the evils of this world. Jeremiah 2 verses 12 and 13 says this, 
Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. God says to the heavens, be shocked. Be appalled at this decision. Look at um, Amos chapter 6. Amos chapter 6. See, Amos describes for us the reaction of people who were not horrified at these actions. Amos 6, and we'll read verses 4 to 6. Amos 6, verses 4 to 6. Woe to those who lie on beds of ivory and stretch themselves out on their couches and eat lambs from the flock and calves from the midst of the stall who sing idle songs to the sound of the harp. And like David, they invent for themselves instruments of music who drink wine in bowls and anoint themselves with the finest oils but are not grieved over the ruin of Joseph. And so here's my question for you. Have you become indifferent to sin? Is there sin that you're seeing on the TV or on the internet or in the lives of people who you love or in your own heart that you have become unmoved by? Are we like the Laodiceans who were neither hot nor cold, they were lukewarm? Do we lack passion and eagerness about the things that sent our Saviour to the cross? Have I become desensitised to the great crimes and offences against God that happen all around and inside me. We should be outraged when people act wickedly, when they take advantage of the poor, when they exploit the weak, when they engage in sexual misconduct and deem themselves untouchable. If I am serious about my faith, I am serious about sin and I can't help but be outraged by it wherever it is found. And that's something that cancel culture is getting right. We should be outraged by sin. We should be upset by it. And it wasn't invented in 2019. The church has been doing that for thousands of years. The prophets long before that. There's more to consider about cancel culture though. And that is, although it is healthy to address sin... It is unhealthy to obsess about the sins of others. Although Jesus and the prophets and the apostles, they weren't afraid to call out sin and iniquity wherever they saw it, they were very careful not to obsess about it. And if we're not careful, Satan can turn our healthy horror at sin into an unhealthy obsession where we are focused on the sins of others like bugs drawn towards the light, where all we can focus on and all we are drawn towards is the light of other people's sins. Last Sunday night, Danny did a fantastic lesson on running ahead and the fact that it is so easy and so many people have been guilty of it, of forgetting their own position and running ahead thinking um, of other people or being obsessed by, by the faults of others. How easy is it to run ahead and not check ourselves first? Just in the Gospel of Matthew, he went through um, times where Jesus addressed people who didn't have the basics right in their own life, who were running ahead and not fixing and adapting the fundamentals. Jesus wasn't confronting overtly wicked people, though. He was confronting religious people like you and I. He was confronting people 
who counted their steps every Saturday. The only people here who counted their steps yesterday are people who have a Fitbit. (laughs) These were people who were tithing their herbs and spices. I'm sure none of us, when we're cooking, take out the cumin and take out the the, um, paprika and say a tenth to God and nine tenths for my curry. And Jesus delivers this scathing rebuke to them, to religious people who were so obsessed by other people's sins that they couldn't see their own. In Matthew chapter 7, if you turn with me to Matthew chapter 7. In verses 4 and 5. Matthew 7, 4 and 5. Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when there is the log in your own eye. You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye and then you'll see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eyes. If if I am viewing people predominantly for their sin, if I look at people in the world and the first thing I think about them is their sin, that's probably an obsession with other people's sins and it's probably masking that log that's in my own eye, that wickedness that's in my own heart. As good as it is to call out sin, it is essential that we're calling out the sin in our own lives and that we have receptive ears when other people call out sin in our own um, heart. The final point that I want us to focus on is Jesus didn't come to point out sin. He came to set us free from sin. This is something that cancel culture doesn't do very well. Cancel culture is so focused on calling out sin um, that Generally, there is no restitution. There is no um, way of making it right for that person. The, the focus is on condemning the person rather than saving the person. And Jesus didn't come just to condemn us. He said our sins condemn us already before God. He came not to point out our sin, not to point fingers and to say what a terrible place we're in, but to invite us to come out of that sin and into the light that he brought. The Christian approach should follow the footsteps of our master, our saviour, our leader, Jesus Christ. When God saw you in sin, entrenched in wickedness, with evil thoughts, walking in darkness, our God did not stand and point a finger. He didn't tweet at you and condemn you for your sins. He didn't log on to Twitter and self-righteously bully you because he thought that you were lower or that you were scum. He didn't stand and watch. He sent his son to pull us out of that sin and into salvation. Look at Titus chapter 3 with me. Titus chapter 3. And we're going to read verses 3 to 7. Titus 3 verses 3 to 7. For we ourselves were once foolish now this is a good thing. If you're on Twitter and you go to, um, uh, to tweet against someone who doesn't share the same opinion and before you are about to rip them apart uh, and show them how good and righteous you are, this is a good verse to read and meditate on beforehand. Uh, verse 3. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But 
when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Saviour, appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Saviour, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. That's the beauty of the gospel. It's not about pointing the finger and condemning people. It's about acknowledging their sin and acknowledging our own sin, but then letting the grace of God appear to bring us out of that sin and into salvation. Look at Titus chapter 2 and verse 11. It says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, no matter what tweets you've made, no matter what mistakes you've made, no matter how deep and wicked your sin is, the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation to all people. This is where the gospel gets confronting. The gospel is for the Harvey Weinsteins of this world and the Kevin Spaceys. The gospel is available to those who we see engaged in, in outright wickedness. The gospel is not for people who live mostly good lives and only engage in little bits of sin. The gospel is there even for our enemies, even for those who we deem to be wholly wicked. Jesus came to give his life for them too. We need to be gracious and looking for opportunities to share salvation with them, not to hoard it for ourselves and leave them condemned on their own. In Romans chapter 6, it talks about people being slaves to sin and by God's great mercy, he has caused us to be born again, to be slaves of righteousness. When I see someone involved in sin, my, my first thought should not be condemnation, but compassion towards them. How can I get them out of that slavery? How can I free them from their bondage to sin and show them the love of God? So, to conclude... Sin should never bring us joy. It should bring us sorrow. It should bring us tears and bring us to our knees. If I ever find myself rejoicing over sin or being indifferent towards sin, there is something deeply troublesome in my soul and I'm afraid for my spiritual condition. It's good and right to be upset about sin. God took sin so seriously that he watched his son die for it. But the cancel culture is toxic when it's used for self-righteous finger-pointing and not for sharing the gospel. If sin ever brings me joy, I'm not on God's side. I think you know whose side I'm on. I can't imagine the pain God feels when he sees me rejoicing over sin, the same sin that sent Jesus to the cross to be brutally murdered. And if I'm rejoicing when I see it in other people, if I'm rejoicing in pointing it out in government figures or in celebrities that I don't like or seeing other people's lives being torn about by sin, I'm not on God's side. It should not fill us with private glee that other people are enslaved to sin. As Titus says, we ourselves were that way. We should share this freedom. And if you're concerned about sin in someone's life, with gentleness and meekness, try and help them, not with self-righteous finger-pointing. Try to bear their burdens. Try to lift them up. One final verse in Galatians chapter 6. Galatians chapter 6. 
And we'll read verses 1 through 3. It says, Brethren, if anyone is caught in any transgressions, you who are spiritual should judge, no, should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. I had better be careful that I don't think I am something, something better than the sinners around me, something better than the, um, the sinners in the world. I deceive myself. So let's make this church family a place where sin is taken seriously but addressed with all gentleness. Paul says in 2 Corinthians, we're in the reconciliation business, not the writing people off, not the cancelling business. God never gave up on you, so make sure you don't give up on your brethren. And I just finished by saying, if you haven't become a Christian, I want you to understand that God wants you to be set free from sin. He doesn't want you to be enslaved to sin anymore. And he wants you, in Romans chapter 6, to die to that life of slavery to sin. He wants you to actually be crucified, Galatians 2 and verse 20, and to be born again, ready to live a new life. And that happens, according to Galatians 3, according to Romans 6, when you make that choice to be baptised, to be buried with Christ and to live in God's grace from then on. So don't leave the building today without thinking about that. Don't leave the building today without talking to someone about that. If you want to be freed from the slavery to sin and you want to walk in God's family from now on, make sure you don't walk out these doors before you talk to someone. Uh, anyone that you want, anyone that you feel comfortable with, but please share that. We would love for you to become a part of God's family for us to conquer over sin and over death and look forward to that eternal life which God promises.